in the last half of Genesis, but we're going to do a whole seven verses in Exodus today. We thought uh, we were talking back there talking. We weren't sure exactly what song Brad was going to do. I thought he might bust into uh, "Walk Like an Egyptian" by the band at the Bangles or something. Yeah. You know, I'd be like kind of like to see you do some. I'd like to see you dance like that, though. Um, excellent. Well, last week um, we are starting the book of Exodus, and uh, we. Uh, Sprinted through basically two-thirds of the book of Genesis last week, and uh, it was intended to be a sprint. And so uh, we could, there are people that spend uh, years uh, going through that book, so we did it in 50 minutes or so, so it's great. But the last third we're going to go through today, and in Genesis what we saw basically was that God forms a beautiful, good, wonderful world when it works according to His design. And eventually, because man's choice to disobey, the world that God formed was deformed. And our relationship with God, very plain and simple, was broken. Our relationship with creation was broken. Our relationship with each other was broken. And our relationship really with ourselves was broken and now filled with fear and with shame. And in love... In love, God initiates reformation and begins to redesign or rebuild that which was broken. And he does this um, by showing mercy and grace to guys like Abraham. And promising to Abraham and to his son and to his son that he would make him a great nation, and that through his offspring, the world would be blessed. And Galatians 3 tells us that even though Abraham had a son, and his name was Isaac, the son that we were really talking about, or he was really referring to, that being God, was Jesus. And Jesus would be the one through whom we were all blessed. But... Genesis, then, is the story of Abraham and his family, which is really, I guess, in some ways, our family by adoption, as we put faith in God in the same way that Abraham put faith in God. But we have to wonder, and I I know people were, and I was too, or am too, is why God chooses such a jacked-up family to work through. And it's pretty messed up. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but when I grew up, I kind of viewed the patriarchs or the, the fathers of the of Genesis and the Old Testament as like these perfect, studly, great family guys that had it all together, and my goal was to model my family after them, and then I read it, basically, is what I think most people do, and they go, what in tarnation is this? Their lives are totally snarfed up, okay? You know, I use the word snarf a lot, sorry. It's better than many others that could be used. But... We have to ask a question, I think it's an honest one, is why does he allow so much sin to occur? I mean, we have Abraham sleeping with his wife's servants who were given to him as wives, only to throw one of them out on the street with her son. We have Abraham's grandsons and daughter-in-laws and nephews being as deceptive as possible with all kinds of people. Eventually have his grandson Jacob marrying um, one daughter of his uh, uncle, Leah, only to work another seven years to marry the other daughter, only to love one more than the other, only to sleep with her, sleep with Rachel, sleep with Leah, sleep with her two servants. So you have these four people sleeping together, and then 12 kids are produced out of that whole mix. And you're like, holy smokes. What a mess. And we're left to wonder, why this family? Why this way? And I I think that we have to kind of, this is how I guess deal with it, is that before the fall of man, God allowed man a choice. He said, don't eat there. Enjoy everything. Don't eat that. And man chose to disobey. He chose independence from God. He chose to believe all the lies that the father of lies, Satan, was telling them about God, basically saying that, well, God's been lying to you. 
He chose to sin. He chose to deny the Creator. He chose to deny that He needed Him. He chose to rebel. He chose to disobey. And He chose darkness rather than light. And man holds, I'm sorry, God holds Him responsible for His choice. And providing the choice at all, God knew. God allowed man to fall in such a way that he knew he would not be able to save himself. He would be so broken. And he knew even before the creation of the world that when men sinned, when men disobeyed, when men rebelled, unless he acted, unless he initiated, unless he pursued men, men would never pursue him. Broken and rebellious and evil, they were, and we are in a very real sense, open to choose, but not to choose God. And it's not in many ways, as we'd say, we don't want to. It's just we just can't. Our desires are bent away from God. So we have to remember that God doesn't love us because we're lovable. Okay? And I know that's hard to believe because we're like, you know, we just, I'm a lovable person. Right? I'm nice, I'm kind, I do good things, I do random acts of kindness all the time. God doesn't love us because we're lovable. And I believe it's wrong to believe that, and this is harsh, but that man is good in any way or deserving of anything. We're bad. And many of us believe that, you know, well, I'm a good person and God just allows bad things to happen to good people. I don't know if I believe that. No, I know I don't. But I think we need to believe that when compared to a holy God, a holy and perfect and righteous and good God, we are bad. And we're sinful and we're rebellious and we're dirty and we're totally jacked up just like Abraham. And we're in need but not willing to admit it. We're knowing the truth but fighting that it's the truth. Romans 1 tells us that finding new ways to worship all kinds of new idols other than God. But despite that, despite that, despite, I know you come to church, hey, great, I feel great about myself. Okay, sorry, I'm just not really into self-esteem. The, despite all of that, though, despite the fact that we are rebellious, and we are, if you don't believe that, anyone who has kids can tell you that, it's pretty obvious at a very young age. Okay, you don't have to teach them to do Bad things. They're really good at it. It's like natural for them. Okay? But despite that, despite all of that, God shows grace to sinful, broken people like Abraham and like me and like you. That by doing that, many people might be blessed. In a very real sense, he doesn't have any other kind of person to work with. That's it. That's the materials he has to work with to fulfill his plan. Broken stuff. But through all of that broken stuff and that those ashes, as the Bible calls it, he makes things beautiful. And I think at the core of all things, he does make much of us and he does love us but He does those things so that we will make much of Him. Period. That we will make much of Him. That we worship a big God. Huge God. And my hope is that as we go through Exodus, you see, holy smokes, we don't worship some little peon God. We worship the biggest, most powerful God who can call things into existence that don't exist who can make from nothing something. And in Exodus, he says this whole point in doing what I'm about to do. He says it in Exodus 14. He says, And the Egyptians shall know, they shall know that I am the Lord and that I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, over his chariots, and over his horsemen. So he's not saving people for his 
for our good alone, for their good alone, for Abraham's good alone, because there's really nothing good there. He's saving people and redeeming this world and fixing things that we might magnify the greatness and the beauty and the awesomeness of God. So we're going to talk about Joseph. Because making much of Joseph Joseph in the midst of brokenness, I'm sorry, making much of God in the midst of brokenness is really what the story of Joseph is all about. At the end of Genesis, in the really beginning of Exodus, I'll read the first verses of Exodus. And this is a, it's kind of a trial, so if you think about it, if you're praying for our kids, because we're trying to match what we're teaching with our kids in here, and so they're learning about Joseph today. So I haven't looked at the bulletin, but there should be questions in there um, that your kids are going to be asking too. And so our hope is to start connecting these things so that when you get in the car, you're like, hey, I learned about Exodus, which I'm sure you say all the time. And your kids are like, hey, we learned about uh, Jesus fishing. Uh, wait a second, that doesn't really connect. So now you have, an, you have a reason to ask them what they learned, and you also have accountability because you know what they learned. They're learning what you learned. So they know about Joseph, hopefully. Here we go, Exodus 1. Uh, I'm going to read the first four verses, actually, of, uh, of chapter 1. And it says this, if I can get to it. It's really hard to find the second book in the Bible, I know. That's pretty pathetic. All right, Exodus chapter 1 says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons and Joseph was already in Egypt. So we need to talk about who this Joseph guy is, because we've already talked about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph, as you probably remember, is the 11th son of Jacob. And his story is amazing. It's an incredible story, and it's really a story of us. But sometimes we make the mistake believing that we're Joseph when we're actually more like Joseph's brothers, and Joseph is actually more like Jesus. Okay, so don't go and say, I'm Joseph, I'm suffering. No, you're the one killing the guy and hurting the guy. Okay, so be careful who you think you are in the story. But Joseph is really important. We've got to back up a little bit, and we will. We left last week. We talked about Jacob meeting his brother. Can you put that map up there? I think we have a map. Um, Jacob was going to meet his brother Esau, and he had fled from his brother about 20 years prior to where uh, we picked this up. And basically for the reason of fleeing, he fled because he was being hated and his brother wanted to kill him for taking his blessing and his promise and thought it was a good time to probably get out of town and find a wife. So he left, went to live um, in Haran, which is kind of up north, with his uncle Laban. And that's where he met his, uh, what would be his future wives, Rachel and Leah. Rachel was the youngest. And Leah was the oldest. Leah was like cross-eyed and kind of messed up somewhere or something and didn't love her as much. But he got tricked into marrying her. And so he married her, didn't love her, married Rachel seven years later. And Rachel was uh, loved much more, but she was made barren by God as a punishment somewhat for what uh, the love that he was not showing to Leah. And Leah started popping up kids. So they had 11 kids between them, between them uh, Leah and Rachel, and between her two servants. And it was a little bit of a competition because obviously Rachel was like, give me a kid or I will die. And so she gives her a servant so she can have a child. So all these kids are born, and eventually um, 11 kids total. And after he prospers quite a bit, he leaves. He goes from the north, Haran, down south into um, what eventually becomes Canaan, where his grandfather Abraham was originally sent by God. And because he has to go through the land of his brother Esau, he's a little scared. And so in the midst of doing uh, his travels, he kind of separates his family, and he sends ahead messengers and a bunch of presents to Esau. Because, you know, last time he saw Esau 20 years ago, he was pretty ticked, and he figures that after 20 years, it's been a long time stewing, and he's probably going to hate his guts, and he's ready for battle. Maybe he can appease his wrath. Here's what happens in Genesis 33. So if you go backwards into the first book, we're just at the end of Genesis 33, and the first uh, four verses says this, And Jacob, as he's traveling down, 
sends these people ahead, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So you can expect, or you kind of predict what he is expecting uh, to happen. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, and then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Remember, he loves Rachel. Put them in the back, kind of. So he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And this is one of the most beautiful things to read with your boys who hate each other's guts. Okay? If they're ever fighting it, just pull out Esau and Jacob for a moment. And Kayla and I remember she read the story to her boys and she's like bawling like a baby. And every time I read it now, I get a little choked up thinking about my boys because it's an amazing story of reunion. And it is, a, it is honestly an amazing story of our relationship with God. It's so many different things. But Esau ran to meet him. And he embraced him, and he fell on his neck, and he kissed him, and they both wept. Unlike us, as in maybe me, I don't know after 20 years what that would have done with me, because I probably would have sat on bitterness for some time having gotten all that stuff taken away from me. But Esau hasn't. And he embraces a brother, and he restores the relationship with him. And eventually, per God's instructions, Jacob is sent to Bethel, where, which is, I believe, future Bethlehem, where he wrestles with the Lord and his name is changed to Israel. We talked about that. And he continues to travel, and Rachel goes into labor in that travel, and she has the twelfth son named Benjamin, and she dies. And he mourns. And he's obviously uh, distraught because... His, uh, it was the wife he loved so much. And she gave him two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And so he eventually settles with his boys in Canaan, and Esau settles a little east in Edom. And it's clear that as Genesis continues, that Jacob has a special affection for his boy Joseph. He loves him a little bit more. Maybe because mom's out of the picture now. Maybe it's because... He was the son, the one son that came from the one woman that he truly loved. Whatever the reason, it says it's because he was the son of his old age. He loved this boy more than the others. And in Genesis 37, it says this, again, verse 1. I think it's there. No, that's not. Well, it shouldn't be in Ezekiel. That's kind of a problem. 37. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old now. Okay, so he's a teenager. He's pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with, his, with the sons of Billah and Zilpah. And those are the two servants that were given from Rachel and Leah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. And now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he was a son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. You've seen Donny Osmond in that perhaps, okay? Joseph in the turn color coat. Whatever it looked like. Something that said really long sleeves. I don't know. It's a colorful coat. The other guys didn't have it and he had one. And when his brothers saw the coat, they saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So, Jacob is loving on his boy. Joseph is the one guy that tattles on all the brothers when they're not doing what they're supposed to do. And to make things worse, Jacob gives them a cool coat, and his brothers are ticked. And they can't, they're ticked so much so they can't even speak nicely to him, ever. Okay? So every time they say something to him, it's like, you jerk, get away from me, coat man, don't want to talk to you, Okay? You can imagine he's probably getting left out of a lot of stuff. And you see that later, which is the next passage, because his boys, or all the boys go out to shepherd, and Joseph left at home. And so there's already a separation that's happening. And so, Joseph, not, I mean, I, he's kind of a bright guy, but he ends up being a really bright guy, but it doesn't seem he's real bright when he's dealing with his bros. He has a dream. Okay? God comes to him in a dream. He thinks, hey, I'll go tell my bros this dream. Okay? Well, the dream 
This is a really good thing to tell people when it's what it was. Continuing 37, it says this. Now, Joseph had a dream. First thing he does, the brothers that don't speak peacefully to him, he goes and tells them. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, well, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. So you imagine big grain stalks, you know, and they're wrapping it up. We were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose. So the sheaf stands up. Weird, I know. Go with it. Sheaf stands up and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Okay? And his brother said to him, Are you joking me? That's my translation. But that's pretty much what they said. Are you gonna re- are you gonna reign over us? Because pretty much he's like you know imagine he's a mechanic. See my wrench stood up, and your wrenches were all around, and they were bowing down to my wrench. You know whatever, fill in the blank, whatever you want. My you know TCP report you know, was stood up, and you know whatever it is, okay. But he says you know are you gonna reign over us? You, you gonna we're gonna worship you? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So they don't like him for his coat. They don't like him because his dad loves him more. They don't like him because he's talking like crazy and he's getting dreams that are weird. They just don't like him at all. And so Joseph, his brothers, he stays home. And the brothers go north up to Shechem to go ahead and watch one of the flocks of, of Jacob. And so because Jacob loves Joseph, and because he knows he can trust him, he says, why don't you go check on your brothers? They have a tendency to kind of get off task. Why don't you go check, because last time you did a really good job of telling on them, go up there and look. So he does. He goes up there and looks. And they're nowhere to be found, where they're supposed to be. And so he meets a stranger. And the stranger says, he says, hey, have you seen my brothers and all their sheep? You know, you know where they're at. And he says, uh, oh, yeah, I think they went uh, up to Dothan. Oh. Okay. And so he follows him that way. And in Genesis 37, they see him coming. So verse 18 says this, And they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Here comes dreamer, boy. Come on. Let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that uh, fierce animals devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of, the, out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And they cast him in the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. So they do. They throw him in this pit, and they walk away. And eventually, when Reuben's not around, they sell their brother to some passing Arabs that are going by for what amounts to about seven ounces of silver. Remember someone else who was sold for some silver? Okay? And so they sell their brother. And then they fake his death. They tear his coat up. They slaughter a goat. Dip it in the blood. And they go home. Oh, Dad, look what we found. You know, amazing. And his dad is just crushed. Because he loved this boy. And he buys into the lie. Okay? Then, the story continues. Joseph is, you know, pretty much in a some kind of wagon going down to Egypt, right? And there's like a little brief interlude in chapter 38. You're like, where the snarf did this come from? Okay? And it's a story of Judah. And I don't know if you've ever read this story, but during Jacob's, you know, mourning and Joseph's traveling to Egypt and Judah is, you know, he's, a, he's an older guy. He's a, if Joseph's 17, he's the 11th son. Judah was like number two or three. So he's quite older and he's got... Um, a wife, but he's a real lustful son of a gun. And so basically he goes, he's not supposed to take wives from the Canaanites, but he does, and he, he has a son out of that named Ur. And then Ur has a wife, and for whatever reason, it's the weirdest thing, I'm not going to go into it, <clears throat> but basically God says in the Bible, in Genesis 38, you can read it, it says, Ur was wicked, so God killed him. Whoa. Okay, so Ur's gone, and he has this wife. And culturally, what happens, and this is before, you know, the law came in and all these things, but culturally what we understand is what had to happen was, in order for um, the line of his son to continue, 
the family, the brother, whoever's next in line, had a responsibility to make sure that he basically conceived a son with the wife of his dead brother and that the line continued on. And so the, the, the son was named Onan. And Onan, for whatever reason, didn't want to do that. And so he basically would have sex with her, but he wouldn't, he would kind of practice his own contraception. We'll just put it that way, okay? And she never got pregnant. And so Onan, that wasn't good in God's eyes, and he went, gone. Okay, you're dead too. So now there's no sons. Well, there's a younger son named Selah. And so she goes to basically Judah, you know, and says, Judah, um, you know the responsibility. And she's like, he's like, won't you stay in my house? And when my younger son is older, he'll take care of what the responsibility is. Okay, well, that never happens. And he doesn't make good on his uh, responsibility. And Judah leaves. And because Judah, Judah is a lustful son of a gun, what's her name? Tamar? No, not Tamar. Yeah, Tamar. Tamar takes it upon herself, of which her grandmother did before her, and the great-grandmother did before her. There's a lot of deception in this family. Takes it upon herself to... Make good on the promise that Judah made and that is the cultural responsibility. So she basically goes and dresses up as a prostitute. And Judah is, you know, having his good old time, whatever. You know, oh, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. Why don't you come on here? So they get together and she gets pregnant. Well, after a couple of months, she has twins, so she's getting much larger. She shows she's pregnant. And Judah's like, hold on. Someone comes and says, your girl, your daughter-in-law is pregnant and she's not supposed to be. And he says, burn her. Burn her. And she says, uh-uh-uh. Guess who the daddy is? Like some Jerry Springer freaky thing, okay? And the daddy is, okay? And she has proof, and he's like, I've wronged you. I've wronged you. And two twins are born from that, uh, from that union, and it's a very interesting um, scenario when they're born. It's similar to Jacob and Esau. When Esau is born and Jacob's holding on his ankle, the twins are born. One sticks his arm out. And, you know, it's good to be born. They tie the, tie the thread on real quick. They're like, oh, there's the firstborn. <laughs> and then guess who comes out? Kills out the thread. Okay? So there's all kinds of conflict, and it makes sense at the end. But at first you're like, what a messed up family. What is going on here? But it's all part of God's plan. Amazingly. So we'll kind of put that on the shelf for a second. Meanwhile, in Egypt, okay, Joseph, now, he's in Egypt, and he gets put into a house of the captain of one of the guards named Potiphar. Okay, we're going to go through this really quick. And he is working for him as a servant works, doing great things. Okay, he is uh, being blessed. Everything he touches turns to gold, figuratively speaking, and it's wonderful. And so, eventually, Potiphar says, you know what, you're going to be in charge of my whole house. This is a slave that he bought. Okay? So, he's like, totally trusts him. He puts him in charge of everything he owns, and he leaves town. And Potiphar's wife, who is a lustful one herself, says, hey, Joe, Potiphar's gone, and I think you got, you're pretty hot, so let's, let's get busy. Okay? Joseph is like, are you joking me? He's like, I have been put in charge, and he names it. And he says, very interesting, he says, why would I sin against Potiphar and God in doing that? God still has faith in God. After being sold by his brothers, sent to Egypt, put in this house, I mean, still has faith in God. He says, I'm not going to do that. Time passes. She grabs him later. Come on. Let's get busy. He's like, no way. And his clothes get torn, and she basically says, what am I going to do now? He just ran out of the house. I got his torn clothes here. Boop, 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 boop. We'll make up a story like Joe's brothers did. Hey, this guy just tried to rape me, and I can't believe that. And Potiphar finds out and throws him in prison. So now he's thrown into a pit, put into slavery a house, blessed with everything, denies what he's not supposed to do in right standing before God, and suffers for it by going to prison now. So now he's in prison. And he's in prison, the prison of the Pharaoh, and two people come in, the baker and the cupbearer. Okay, I don't know, you expect maybe a murderer to come in, you expect like some terrible thief to come in, but when you are sitting in a jail cell with a baker and a cupbearer, I'm thinking, 
I'm screwed, okay? Because there's no way, if the guy is hateful enough to hate his baker, who, like, making pies for him, and his cupbearer, who all he has to do is drink something so the king doesn't get poisoned, he's stuck. So he's in a terrible situation, and God gives him a dream. I shouldn't say, God gives the baker and the cupbearer dreams. So they wake up, and Joseph comes in, and still, he's getting blessed. The jailers love him. Everyone loves Joseph, the prisoner, okay? And so comes in, the baker's like, oh, cupbearer's like, oh, he's like, what's wrong? Oh, we had some freaky dreams. Really? What was it? Well, and he tells them their dreams. And Joseph's like, okay, well, God can interpret that. Not I. God can interpret that. Here's what it means. Baker, you're going to die. Cupbearer, you're going to live. Good luck. Okay? That's pretty much what he says. And? Lo and behold, what happens? Opens up. Baker, you're hung. Cupbearer, you're restored. Okay. He was right. And so the cupbearer, though, forgets, like, you know, thanks. I guess he didn't really make it happen, but he, you know, calmed his heart a little bit. Cupbearer goes back, forgets who he is, and Joseph is in prison for two full years sitting there. And eventually, Pharaoh has a dream. And Pharaoh starts dreaming all kinds of freaky things, and no one can tell him what's, what's going on. And he dreams about all these, like, seven calves, and, and some are like, have all you can see their bones, and some are really fat. He's like, well, I don't understand this. So he asks all those magicians, and they're like, I don't know, you know, we got 14 cows? I don't know. He, they didn't know, okay? So the cupbearer, boom, suddenly remembers, oh, light bulb, hey, there's a guy you got in prison. Remember when you killed the baker, you know, all this stuff? Oh, yeah. There's a guy in prison... And he can tell you what it means. Really? All right, bring him out. So they bring him out. And he says, I hear that you can tell dreams. Yeah, I can do that. He says, okay. I'm going to tell you my dream, and you tell me what it means. He's like, well, I can't tell you what it means. He's like, well, he's like, well God can, but I can't. But whatever. You just tell me what it means, whether God's telling. Okay, so he tells him his dream, and he says, all right, here's what's going to happen. And he explains that there's going to be seven years of plenty and up, and just all kinds of abundance, and everything's going to be wonderful. And then you're going to have seven years where it's horrific, famine, and terrible. And Pharaoh's like, dang, awesome. And so as a result of that entire situation, Joseph is made, and he calls him Lord, second in command under Pharaoh in charge of everything. That's a big shift to go from, I'm hated by my brothers, into the pit, into slavery, into this house where I'm going to be tempted and blah, 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 into prison, wrongly and falsely accused, in there for several years, to be brought out to, before a pharaoh who could kill me in a, with a word, did the same to the baker. Now, who am I? I'm a prisoner who dreams stuff and basically I'm an accused rapist. So, you know, he says, God's blessing. You're in charge of everything. And in Genesis 41, he even says, you shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. And only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So he is the greatest and the greatest nation on the earth at the time. And the famine comes. But Joseph has been prepared. And Joseph stockpiled all kinds of food and all kinds of stuff. And so Egypt doesn't suffer during this amazing famine. But Jacob and his other sons do. So Jacob one day says, boys, you've got to go down to Egypt, just like Isaac tried to and Abraham did. But you go down to Egypt during the famine, and you've got to get some, buy some food. Okay. And so they do. And then, although they don't recognize Joseph, Joseph recognizes them. And eventually what happens is through a series of events, which happen in the you know, late 40 chapters into, into the last few is Joseph reveals who he is through, kind of plays with him a little bit. It's kind of fun. Reveals to them who he is. And his brothers are shocked and scared. And Joseph is everything and more in terms of loving and gracious. And eventually, he brings his entire family, Jacob and all his brothers and all their wives and children and he brings them all down to settle in the land of Goshen. The land of Goshen is in Egypt, 
And it's a land that's a little separate from Egypt because the Egyptians hated shepherds. Didn't like them. So they settled in Goshen to kind of be away from that. And in Exodus, that's where it all takes place. I always talk about the land of Goshen. Throughout the plagues, everything happens everywhere but the land of Goshen. And that's where Jacob and his family live, and they prosper amazingly. And eventually, as they're down there, Jacob dies. And his brothers get really scared then. And they go, we know that now that dad's gone, Joe's going to unleash on us. He's been waiting. And so they go to him and he says, no, 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 no. And in one of the amazing verses of which your children, that's the key verse today for them, I believe, and it's a verse that we should all memorize. Genesis 50, 20. And he says to them, I'm not mad. I'm not angry. And 50, 20 says, as for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And I can't help but think of Christ on the cross. As he's getting beaten and abused and spat upon and accused and screamed at, get yourself off. And he says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He says, God meant it for good. Now, in Exodus 1, the last couple verses there in verse 6 and 7 says, Then Joseph died. And we pick up this family of Joseph. Joseph dies and all his brothers die and all the generations. But the people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And the story of Joseph is where the story of Exodus begins. And they're very similar stories in that Joseph in the midst of his experience, and he finds out at the end, but even in Israel is going to experience this over 400 years of God's silence of, where are you? Where are you? And God shows up, and I think the story of Joseph proves to us, proves that God is always there. And the first thing is that God is always Always, always, always faithful to what he says. But sometimes we want him to be faithful to what he hasn't said. But he is always faithful to what he has said. Let me prove it to you. He keeps his promises according to his plan and his way and his power and his timing. He is not a man that doesn't keep his word because we give our word today and it ain't worth snot. It really isn't. But God keeps his word. Check it out. He says this. In Genesis 12, when he's talking back to Abraham, way generations before, he says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. And you know what Abraham's thinking. Sweet! Okay. Here's how I view that, God. This is how my blessing is going to work out. Then you lay it out in your mind of what the blessing looks like. Right? And if that's not enough, God promises it again. Genesis 15. Behold, I've given... Oh, this is Abraham talking. You've given me no offspring, even though you promised, and a member of the household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man, he's talking about a guy that's not his son yet. He said, This man's not going to be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and the number of the stars, if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. And then he promises it again. Genesis 16, Genesis 17, Genesis 22, Genesis 26, Genesis 35, Genesis 48. I will make you great. I will make you huge. I will make you big. I will bless you. I will bless you. Okay, I want you to bless me this way. And when Joseph welcomes his family into Egypt, it says there are about 70 people, 70 men, which you could double that. It's about probably 150 at least people. Okay? Not much more, maybe some, but at least about 150 people. And the Bible records that when they exited Egypt, which we'll see in the Exodus, they numbered 600,000 men. 600,000 men, which means it was probably about a million and a half people. 
little over a million at least. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will take care of you. I'm pretty much sure that Abraham wasn't expecting that way. That method. But God was faithful. God was faithful. And I love in 1 Timothy 2.13, we look at we look at this messed up family and we go, yeah, man, they must have done everything wrong. Abraham went down to Egypt. He wasn't supposed to and all these things. And First Timothy says, God is faithful even when we're faithless. God's faithfulness is not dependent upon us. It's kind of like a marriage. In many ways, when I committed to my wife, I said, I'll be faithful to you, not dependent upon anything that you do which is a very different way of looking at things. Sometimes we kind of barter with God. I've been really good. I've been doing this. So I expect you to be faithful. And once you get the gospel and you see that God has done everything and been faithful and you deserve nothing, the relationship changes. God is faithful. Secondly, God is aware. And this, is, this blows your mind. He knows everything. What do you mean by that? Everything. Like everything? Everything. Past, present, future, everything. Outside of time, sees it all, in the moment, everything. There's nothing. Okay, catch this. There's nothing. There's not a single thing that God goes, <gasps> didn't see that coming. <laughs> nothing surprises God. I mean, that should bring you comfort. Maybe a little bit of, okay, what? I'm a little ticked about that actually. But at the very least, you know that He knows there's nothing hidden from His sight, which is another terrible thing to think about for some of us who are hiding things. God doesn't know about that. Yeah, He does. Come on. But He knows everything. More than you could possibly... Have you ever think about that? Because we kind of say, well, I know a lot, you know. It's like I know a lot of things. and I mean, everything. He talks about knowing the number of hairs on your head. Okay, it's not just you. Every person that's ever born, knowing when you're going to die. And when this, this, the wild thing is this, when the book of Exodus begins, okay, Israel's been in Egypt for about 400 years, and God told Abraham this would happen. He told him. He's like, let me tell you, it's going to happen. Way before it happens, okay? Genesis 15, when he makes his covenant with Abraham, he says this, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. Behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Okay, know for certain, not like, this could happen. Just in case this might happen, I want you to be prepared. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for a while. No, for 400 years. Well, that's weird. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come up with possessions. We think, we think we know so much more than God, that we see all things in our little horizontal realm, in this little thing, and God sees everything and is aware of everything. And even as, in the, as we get into Exodus, you'll see that people are grumbling, and God simply says, God knew. He knew. He knew. He's aware. But that's not enough unless you continue and go into Joseph's story and you say God is faithful, God's aware, and God is in control. Which is probably the hardest thing to believe, especially when things are completely out of control. And Joseph makes this clear multiple times. He tells his brothers, you didn't send me here. He says, God sent me here. Joe, are you kidding me? Yeah, he sent me in the pit, sent me in slavery sent me into prison, sent me before Pharaoh. We know, we know did it. No, God sent me there. And even the story of Judah and Tamar, if you ever read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, it's interesting what it includes. Because God is in the business of taking broken, messed up people and using them and saving them and redeeming them for His glory, no matter what it is. And if you ever read that list of people, go ahead and take the next step and look up who these people were. 
And you'll find out that in this list of genealogy in the beginning, you have these people. Liars, drunkards, perverts, prostitutes, abusers, adulterers, shepherds, corrupt kings, prophets, cruel soldiers, criminals, idol worshippers, godly and ungodly priests, all of which play a role in the line of Jesus, including Perez, the son of Judah and Tamar. I mean, let's just pause for a second and say, Joseph's story, if if nothing else, seems like the story of the impossible. I mean, the impossible situation, the impossible. How can a guy endure that and and be faithful? I mean, that's just ridiculous. How can anyone... I mean, that guy's got amazing faith, right? No, I think it's the wrong question. We've got a stinking amazing God. Okay? And can you possibly imagine... And I don't... I can't. So maybe you can. Maybe you're smarter than me. How... Big God is. How faithful God is. How in control and aware God is. I mean, let's just stop. No matter your situation, however bad it is, however dark it is, or dark it's been, or dark you think it's going, however dark, how big is your God? I mean, how big is He? Because I want the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Joseph. The God of a true, real story who's in control of everything. Everything. What do you mean by that? Everything. Dark, light, whatever. He knows. How big is your God? And I think whatever circumstances you're facing right now, and I'm facing, because you know what? I get just as scared and just as hurt as you do. We have just different kinds of hurt and different kinds of fears. We all have them, though. And the question boils down to, is your faith strong enough? No. The question is, how big is our God that I'm putting my faith in? And He has proven faithful. And I think that if we can trust, if we can just for a moment, by the grace of God, trust that God is always, always, always working in our lives then we can maybe see for a moment that the intrusions and maybe just some of the inconveniences to the disruptions and the changes and even the afflictions that devastate us, even those that appear totally evil, are His way of moving us toward something good, namely Him. For a moment can we be there? Because that's a big God. That's the God whose arms I want to rest in and Him to say, it's okay, be still. And we must never forget that our God did not say, hey, suck it up. Will you quit your complaining? Don't you know I'm in control? You know? Why are you so frustrated? Stop your crying. That's pretty much what I tell my boys sometimes and I don't know if that's very righteous. I don't think we could ignore, and we shouldn't ignore our affliction, but we also can't dictate to God how He should fix it. Because our God says, look, and I I pray that the Holy Spirit will convince you of this, because there's nothing that I could ever rationalize and teach you that would convince you of this. It would be the Holy Spirit. And that is this, that God says, I hear you. I love you. I'm here and I never left. Be still. Be still. I mean, I'm the God that created the universe. I'm the God that said exist to that which did not. I'm the God that gives life and breath. Be still. Don't be afraid. Be still and know that I am God. I will save you. Trust me. And I think if nothing else, the story of Joseph and then Exodus simply says, God speaking, cannot save yourself. Don't try. You won't be saved by your intellect. You're not going to be saved by your pain-free life. You're not going to be saved by your job. You're not going to be saved by your husband, and you're not going to be saved by your wife. 
You're not getting saved by your money or your toys or your pleasure or your success or your education or your self-esteem or any of the good works you do. You're not going to be saved by those things. God says you're going to be saved by the shedding of my son's blood, period. And you don't need to do anything but accept that he suffered just as you did. Don't miss for a mistake for a second think that God hasn't suffered. You look at the life of Jesus. He suffered like we have. And then he died in your place for your sins according to his plans from the beginning. And you act, read Acts 2.23. And it's amazing. God planned it all. All the suffering, all the pain to save you and me. And he says, look, believe and be still that I know where you are. I know where you are. And that's how Exodus starts. And then he says, I know where we're going. Just follow. We're going to celebrate communion. And I'll tell you, at the core of everything, and this is for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And at the core of it, the bottom of it, it simply says, I need a Savior. I need a God to save me. And the Exodus is a picture of that. God does it all. Not Moses, not Joseph. God does it all. And it's you humbling yourself and saying, I cannot fix me or anyone else around me. And we lift up the blood and say, Ah, the bread and dip it in it. Jesus did it all. Let's pray. Father, we magnify your name today because it is great. Lord, through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and his brothers, we see your perfect plan. And although we don't understand it all the time, and honestly, God, we don't like it all the time. I pray that you will increase our faith, that we might put our trust, that you are in control and that you have proven faithful. You have proven yourself loving. You have proven yourself knowledgeable of all things. And you have proven yourself powerful enough to control everything. I confess, Father, that I have tried to save myself too many times. And I pray for those people who have placed something else as their Savior, that you would knock that over and put Jesus there. That they may find redemption and freedom and joy, even in the midst of affliction, knowing that you are God. Help us to be still and know that. Amen.